Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Serve Denton Weekly, a podcast where we interview local leaders who are on the front lines of helping those in need in our community. I'm your host, Ian Harbour. Mental health is a growing issue, and not just in awareness, but in scale. Things like depression, anxiety, and suicide are all on the rise in our society. And that's before COVID hit. The global pandemic that we're all in right now has only heightened mental health issues and increased the need for mental health care. That's why today I'm talking with Kayla Whitworth. Kayla is the lead behavioral therapist at Health Services of North Texas. I think this conversation has a ton of great information. So I hope you get a lot out of it the way I did. Enjoy. All right, so I'm here with Kayla Whitworth. Kayla is a licensed clinical social worker and she's the lead behavioral therapist at Health Services of North Texas. Kayla, thanks so much for coming on Served It Weekly today. Thank you. So uh, on our second episode of this podcast, we had Doreen Rue on, who is your CEO at HSNT. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think, when most people think about health services in North Texas, I think the first thing that comes to their mind is medical care because it's you know health services, it's a medical center, you go there to see a doctor. Um, but your role is a little bit different there. Um, you're a therapist, you're a social worker. And so tell me a little bit about um, your role with HSNT and how HSNT handles um, mental health care as well as medical care. Sure, sure. So when I came to health services um, six years ago, my director had hired me because she had a vision and she wanted to really have an integrated model of behavioral health. So the idea being that you could access medical care and mental health care at the same location. And so even taking that a step further, beyond just being co-located, we wanted it to be integrated, right? So your behavioral health provider is speaking with your medical provider and there's a collaboration in your care, which just makes sense, right? So a lot of people go way over here to get their mental health treatment if they even get it. And then we are here to get their medical treatment. There's not much collaboration between those two providers. Um, And we can see that that's beneficial to have that collaboration. So when I started, that was the goal. So then we had to build it, right? So we had to figure out what does that look like? And how do we we put that vision into reality? Um, And so that's what we started doing. And so I was on site. I would see patients um, as they came in for appointments with myself. Or when they were in the exam room, right? And they were having some kind of an issue that they thought um, that I might be able to help with. Um, So that's really where it started. As we continued, we realized that there was an additional need that our patients had that really wasn't being filled very well in the community um, or by us. Um, And so that's when we launched a second kind of part of our behavioral health services, which is what we have called e-psychiatry. So um, we started with a virtual system with that program. Um, So the therapist that we have is in another part of Texas, um, and she logs on using a virtual platform to see patients who would come to our office, um, and then we put them in front of the computer to meet with her. And she would do medication management for our patients. So what was really amazing about that program was our patients who didn't have insurance could see a psychiatrist for their copay, which was $15, $20 a session. And that wasn't available in the community. If you didn't have insurance and you went and saw a psychiatrist, it would be one, two, three hundred dollars per session. Wow. Um, so that was the second piece that we added a little bit later. And that program continues to run today. And is um, we've actually 
recently added more hours to her schedule because there's such a need for that. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think having those two things together in the same spot, both medical health and mental health is really powerful because um, it, it takes a more holistic approach to health mm-hmm. than just one or the other. And a lot of times those two things are related to each other. So being able to have those uh, interdisciplinary relationships, if you will, in the same spot, that goes a really long way. You know, we're talking about mental health. Thankfully, I think there is far less of a stigma around it than there used to be, um, you know, even 10 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I still think we have a long way to go with that. And I, even with that, I don't know if people really have a grasp on how prevalent mental health uh, issues are right now. And so when we're talking about mental health, what are some of the categories that fall under mental health that we should be aware of? And how widespread are they? How, how big are we talking when we're talking about mental health issues? Yeah, um, I think it's a much more widespread issue than people really recognize <clears throat> on, a, on a global perspective. But I think if people actually look at the people that they know in their own lives, they probably can identify one person in their own lives that is struggling with some sort of mental illness. Um, there's a really great group called NAMI, which is the National Association of Mental Health Institute. Um, and they put out a lot of really great fact sheets. And that's where I get a lot of my data from. So it's a credible source. Um, and they estimate that one in five U.S. adults experiences a mental illness. And then of all the adults in the U.S. population, not just those with mental illness, 19% suffer from anxiety, 7% per, from depression. And then we get a little bit lower with 4% coming from PTSD, 4% coming from dual diagnosis, which would be a mental health diagnosis and a substance use diagnosis. Um, and then like 3% bipolar, and then it kind of gets smaller and smaller. So 19% of all U.S. adults are struggling with anxiety, right? Wow. Pre-COVID. So Pre-COVID, exactly. Prior to a pandemic. Um, so it's certainly a widespread issue. Um, and I think that sometimes people can understand that, but um, maybe they don't realize that it's as prevalent as it is. Yeah, I mean, those are huge numbers. 19% of all adults in America right. are are struggling with anxiety. And then there's other categories besides that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge problem that uh, that people are facing. It's really mm-hmm. widespread. If someone doesn't have one of those um, categories diagnosed in something like that, like anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD, bipolar, some of these things you mentioned, if, if someone, some of those go untreated, what are some of the dangers that those mental health issues pose to them? Sure. Um, well, there's some that are both physical and then there's some that are kind of socioeconomic um, things that can occur. So again, citing reputable sources, the NAMI Association, um, there is an increased risk of chronic disease with folks who go untreated for their mental health diagnosis as well as an increased risk for substance abuse, right? Because typically we're trying to self-medicate our symptoms with alcohol, drugs, whatever. Um, Interestingly, 20% of people who are experiencing homelessness have a diagnosis um, or could qualify for a diagnosis of serious mental illness. 37% of people who are incarcerated have a mental health diagnosis. And more alarmingly, in the juvenile justice system, 70% of people in the juvenile justice system have a mental health diagnosis. Wow. And all kind of agree that 
incarceration and the criminal justice system is not the best, nor is it really necessarily their job to be treating mental health diagnoses. Um, so there are, those are kind of the immediate effects, but worldwide it even has some impacts for, um, so depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Um, and they're estimating that the cost to the global economy is a trillion dollars per year and the loss of productivity because of mental health diagnoses. Wow. When you say that uh, depression is the leading cause of disability, can you explain that a little bit more? How does how does depression lead to that widespread disability? So I think anxiety, although it seems to be more prevalent at 19 percent. Right. And and that's a U.S. number. Um, and and anxiety is is higher, maybe statistically. I think it works a little bit different than the fact that depression can really keep you so low it prevents you from being able to do daily tasks. So mm-hmm. if you up and bathe and you can't get up and remember to eat, brush your teeth, you're not going to be able to go to a job and maintain employment, right? Um, people with anxiety um, often have detrimental effects because of that anxiety, and sometimes with agoraphobia have difficulty going out in certain places. Um, but maybe are able to get up and do an online job or find something that they can do from home or another avenue for that. But depression can be really disabling in the fact that you just can't even do the daily life tasks. Yeah. Wow. And you even mentioned how um, depression and mental health, how that affects your chronic illnesses as well, which I think that's one of the things that is really great about HSNT's model about having mental health and, and medical care at the same spot. And you guys can work together in that way. What are some symptoms of these mental health issues should people be looking for? For example, how do I know the difference between like, let's say, everyday stress because of my job or family life or something else and actual anxiety that I need to seek help and treatment for? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think there are several kind of signs to look for, right? So to answer the question, is it stress? Is it worry about something or is it more um, anxiety or depression? Typically, if there's a trigger, if there's um, I'm feeling down sad because there's been a death or a divorce or there's an identifiable cause, that um, maybe is still something that needs treatment and maybe therapy could help with that um, would still be a good idea. Um, But maybe that's not clinical depression. Um, The same is kind of true with anxiety. If there's an identifiable cause, you've had a recent car wreck and now driving makes you nervous. Well, that makes sense. We can walk through that and we can kind of learn how to manage that um, through therapeutic techniques. Um, Depression that is more kind of the clinical depression is this kind of overwhelming feeling of hopelessness and feeling down and feeling like you're a failure without really any necessary cause or trigger. Um, And the same would be true with anxiety, feeling overly worried, excessively worried, catastrophic thinking. Um, I always talk to my patients about their planning for for Z and A hasn't even happened, right? Mm -hmm. So this energy on all these things um, that we didn't need to. Um, And that's more of kind of a a chronic thing, right? So these people who come into treatment usually describe having these symptoms for a long period of time. Um, So that's kind of a difference. Um, symptoms to look for excessive worry, like we were talking about feeling sad, down, depressed, hopeless, worthless, suicidal thoughts, um, avoiding things that you used to enjoy. Maybe you used to like to go hiking or biking, and now you don't have the energy or motivation to do those things anymore. Um, certainly a lack of concentration, trying to do things and not being able to complete them, forgetting what you were doing, noticing that maybe you used to have 
a drink with your friends on the weekend and now you're drinking every day um, could be a warning sign. Um, also mood changes, right? Um, we all fluctuate in our mood every day. Um, we're not always happy and that's okay, but kind of severe mood swings, uh, feeling really down and then feeling euphorically happy um, would all be kind of warning signs that maybe there's something that needs to be investigated. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned, you know, that it, it could be something that if there's a trigger event, then maybe that's obviously still needs to be treated and, and do that for sure. But if nothing, you know, it, it kind of comes on suddenly and there's no trigger for it, then that might be something that needs to be sought. It's not just a, a blue day, something that kind of happens over and over again and is recurring and extended with no real cause to it. Right, right. Part of the diagnostic criteria for depression or anxiety would indicate a period of time. And so, and that's usually six months or greater, right? Um, so obviously right after somebody passes, you'd be sad. Um, but does that get better? Are you able to then resume your normal life at some point and that it is still painful and a tender area, but you're able to kind of move on? If not, then that's something that really might have become something more. Definitely. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation that, you know, 19% of all adults in the U.S. struggle with anxiety. And you mentioned that's pre-COVID. And yeah. now, obviously, here we are in COVID, you and I doing this conversation over Zoom because of COVID. How have you seen the, how, this pandemic impact mental health rates? And has it become more severe? I assume so, but how much more and then how have you guys at HSNT kind of uh, shifted or adapted to meet that increased need right now? Right, right. Um, well, and I'm not sure that we have the numbers on the increases yet for statistics um, because we're still in it, right? Um, but certainly I can tell by the volume of new patients um, and current patients who've increased their frequency in visits that there's obviously an uptick here. Um, so at HSNT, um, as I had mentioned, we've had virtual visits for our e-psychiatry program. So we were not completely new to that. Uh, so it was something we had done before. But now we were looking at doing it in a different way, right? So before patient was on site, provider was off site. Now we were looking at provider on site, patient off site, and eventually even provider off site, patient off site. Um, and so we were very fortunate that the medical record program that we used had a platform for virtual visits. So it was really just our IT people flipping a switch and we were live. So I think it was a Friday. I was told, hey, we're changing stuff up because of COVID. And by Wednesday, I was live seeing patients in a virtual platform. So that's a pretty wow. quick. So patients didn't really go unserved for very long. Um, but part of that for the behavioral health providers was educating ourselves, right? So the pandemic is new to us too, as people, as clinicians. And how do we treat people in a pandemic, right? We're, we're new to that as well. So um, we did training. We watched videos from clinicians who were also doing this. Um, there was a lot of um, collaboration and emails going out between people who were in the mental health field and, and seeing this um, and what they were doing. So certainly working on ourselves and, and getting skills to help our patients. Um, so it was, it was interesting in the beginning, there was certainly a lot of worry, anxiety. What is this virus? What is it going to do? Uh, but I think in the beginning, what I saw too was there was an increase in worry and fear, but there was um, kind of a little bit more energy around that, right? So maybe we had an adrenaline rush. And so people thought, okay, I can shelter in place for a couple of weeks. I can do this. That's no problem. And then it got extended a little more. And we thought, okay, I can do that. 
But now here we are several months later, and I think what we're seeing is what people are calling pandemic fatigue. People are over it. People mm-hmm. are tired of it. Um, and when I was doing an interview with somebody else, I kind of talked to him about, I almost think this is a grieving process, that we are grieving our loss of normalcy. We kind of had this idea in our head that when this started, we would all go back to normal at some point. And we all are seeing very realistically, and me included in this group, I think I thought one day, this would just go back. Um, and now it's not, and it won't for a very long time. And so I think we're going through those five stages of grief um, and kind of processing that with our loss of normalcy. You mentioned the five stages of grief right there at the end. Will you kind of walk us through what those stages are? And, and sure. if you can, maybe even how you think we're experiencing them collectively right now. So um, five stages of grief are, um, and let's see if I can get these in the right order, um, is denial, um, bargaining, anger, depression, and acceptance. Um, and they all seem pretty clear, right, of what, what that is and what that means. Um, but there's been a lot of researches on the five stages of grief. Um, and they've come to the conclusion that you really don't have to go through them in a particular order. So it's not really one, two, three, four, five. And you can ebb and flow. So you can go into one and come out and um, go back to another. But the, the goal, I guess, if you will, would be to reach this stage of acceptance. Um, and so I think you can see that playing out in the world around us, right? So we have some people in denial. Um, we have some people who are angry. Um, we have some people who have hit depression and are feeling very hopeless that we'll ever be able to regain some sense of normalcy. So I think people are at their own individual stages. We're not collectively at the same stage. Um, and that makes it almost more difficult. Absolutely. So if somebody's listening to this, episode and um, you know they're experiencing some of these mental health symptoms or they know someone that's friend family member coworker who is um, you know feeling like maybe they have anxiety or depression or, or something else what could they do to um, maintain their mental health during this time yeah I certainly think reaching out to somebody right staying connected we know is important um, and so making sure that you're having, even if it's virtual, you're having conversations with people, you're, you're continuing to connect with other people. If you're really struggling, then I think you reach out to an agency to, there's 1-800 numbers you can reach out to, letting your friend know that, hey, I'm really struggling. Can you help me find a resource um, so that maybe I could talk to somebody? Um, there are a couple kind of things that I think if, if otherwise you're doing pretty well, and you just kind of are struggling from time to time and don't think maybe therapy is actually something you need, um, then there's an acronym that we've been using a lot called FACE, A-C-E. Um, and it stands for focus on what you can control, accept and acknowledge your thoughts and feelings, come back to your body, and engage in what you're doing. And this came out from somebody who, um, after the pandemic started, is really just a quick thing that we could give patients to kind of run through. Um, And so I've used it with several patients and myself that when we kind of become overwhelmed with the coverage of COVID or the riots or whatever, kind of going through, okay, let me focus on what I can control. Let me accept and acknowledge that I'm feeling worried, that I'm feeling anxious right now. And let me come back to my body by doing some deep breathing, by standing up and doing some stretches and then engaging in what I'm doing at the moment, whether that be talking to you right now or um, making dinner for my family, whatever it is, because the moment before you is all you really control, right? And so if we're missing that, then we're missing out on the good things. Um, So to kind of piggyback on the good things, um, I've been doing a lot of work with patients on gratitude 
And I think it's really important. There's a psychiatrist at Yale named Laura Santos, and she's put on um, the internet a course called The Science of Wellbeing. It's an amazing course. It's free um, for people who want to take it. Um, so I certainly encourage people to look into that. But one of the things she really looks at is how impactful being grateful is. And I think this is such a timely thing for us to be practicing because the negative is there. We know that. But we're almost so hyper-focused on it that we're forgetting about any of the good things that are still there, right? So I've been doing it myself and I've encouraged my patients to do gratitude journaling, which is simply writing out five things a day that you're grateful for. And they don't have to be big things. It doesn't have to be these huge things. It can be silly things. The other day I put down, I'm thankful for bacon because I like bacon. Um, I'm always thankful for bacon. Right? So all the small things that are still there. And so, no, it doesn't undo the negative and it doesn't stop COVID. But I think it helps to give us a more clear picture of our lives, right? Because sure, we have these things over here, but we also have all this stuff over here. I love what you said about focusing on what you can control, because I think there's so much that feels out of control right now. Um, It makes me think of, uh, I think it's the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He talks Mm -hmm. about there's the circle of influence and the circle of control. and No, the circle of concern and the circle of influence, sorry. Uh And there's a lot that we're concerned about, but we can do a lot about it. But there's things that we can control. There's things that we can influence. And if we focus on that, then it actually does help our mental health and it helps us right. be kind of calmed down from all the things that we can't control and, and helps us focus on the things that we can, uh, which is right. very empowering and kind of helps with a lot of other things as well. I love that. Mm-hmm. So if someone uh, is listening to this and they may not be feeling uh, a lot of those ways, but they, they want to be a part of it, they want to help those who do, how could they get involved or help with you guys at HSNT? Um, certainly reaching out to, um, us directly saying, Hey, I want to volunteer. Um, certainly that looks a little bit different right now with COVID, but, um, I'm sure there are capacities that we still need, um, assistance with. Um, we have lots of people dropping off food just for our people who are currently working in the clinics and, and helping support them. Um, reaching out to the United Way here in Benton, because they're kind of the hub of our nonprofits here, right? Um, coming to serve Benton or reaching out to serve Benton and saying, Hey, you guys have such amazing people in your building, how can I help, right? Um, going to a local food pantry, right? Because we know that people are struggling with food and necessities right now. So either helping there or donating, um, I think is a great way that you can do something that makes you feel good for doing something and then also benefits other people. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Kayla, thank you so much for coming on. This is a great conversation. And I know that uh, this topic is huge right now. And it'll, it'll, I'm sure it'll help a lot of people who are listening. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. This is a difficult time for everyone. And while the difficulties at the forefront of our minds are medical and economic, we shouldn't neglect to think about the mental health challenges this pandemic poses as well. If you or somebody you know needs help, please reach out. There is help for you and it's available for you and you deserve it. If you found this conversation helpful, you can share it with a family member or coworker or friend or on your social media. You know, our goal is to bring you insightful conversations every single week from leaders right here in Denton County on local issues. So be sure to hit that subscribe button to get new episodes every single week. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll be back next week with another one. As always, thanks for listening.